Hi everyone, I'm your host, Sean Lee Davis. I'm a filmmaker, conservationist, green entrepreneur, and impact investor. And this is Our Future Nature, a podcast spotlighting the ideas, technologies, and solutions for a more sustainable world. In this season of the podcast, we'll be speaking to advocates, entrepreneurs, scientists, and thought leaders about global environmental and social issues and how we can go about solving them. I aim to separate the real talk from the greenwash and dive deep into novel technologies and solutions to help you understand just how exciting sustainability can be. With that said, let's get on with today's episode. Mike, great honor to meet you. Obviously, I've seen your books before and to come out here to Kidra Lodge and actually see one of the people that set it up is really an amazing experience. So I just wanted to get a feeling today about what it's like to you know, create one of these camps and talk a little bit about conservation and how we protect this biodiversity moving forward. But first of all, can we go into a bit about your background? Tell us who you are, what you've done, how did you get to here today? Um, yeah, um, well, and a pleasure meeting you, Sean. I think that um, for me, I, I grew up in Zimbabwe. I um, uh, definitely the black sheep of my family. My father was a was a pathologist, and I come from a medical family. None. My eldest brother is a physicist, and my younger brother is like a specialist programmer. So I was really the um, the one that went out into the wild from a young age. So in my teens, I started. Uh, I was with the Boy Scouts in Zimbabwe, and I did a lot of survival training. We went to amazing areas to do that. Places like Mana Pools uh, in the um, uh, in the south along the Chiredzi River. There were farms there that we went to, uh, and so that really sort of instilled for me a passion and love for the wild and a love for for wild animals. And um, I'd always wanted to become a pilot. Um, after my father died, I was quite young, uh, seventeen. My mother moved us to South Africa, and um, I went and uh, uh, started flying. I got my pilot's license in. Uh, in 76, um, as a young 23-year-old. And uh, there was a slump in, uh, in, in aviation at the time. The, the, the way forward for a young pilot was to become an instructor, but I definitely didn't have the patience for that, and it's not what I, the kind of flying that I wanted to do, let's put it that way. Um, so I was lucky enough to answer an advert in a, in, in a newspaper, to, uh, to, and it was to go and work at Londolozzi as a trails guide, or trails ranger, they called him in those days. So that was uh, that was my start. So really incredibly lucky to, you, you know, the, the main game lodge of the day was Mala Mala, um, which as I remember in those days charged 90 rand a night, which we just thought was unbelievably exorbitant. Uh, 90 rand. You know, Lozzi, I think we charged 15 rand and we put the price up to 30 when we built the chalets. But um, it was a real um, eye opener for me. And I was very lucky to work with a guy. Uh, not only the Vartis, the Vartis were instrumental in, in, in obviously um, helping me um, uh, and, and teaching me as well a great deal, not only about about guiding and that kind of thing, but about the business and hard work. Uh, but I worked with a, a friend of mine called Lex Hess, um, and he, he and I have remained friends my entire life. And he was the one, in fact, who first um, got me passionate about photography. So my photography started in the 70s at, uh, at, at Lodolozzi with Lex. Um, but it was always the the case that I, I wanted to uh, join my flying ability and my guiding skills. And pretty much the only place that you could do that back in those days was here in Botswana. So I left Londolozzi after two and a half years um, and I came up here. I joined one company, but that really didn't work out uh, that well. It was um, We hardly had any business in those days. I remember um, at the Lignanti camp I worked at, we'd had one guest in five months and I decided this this cannot work for me. So um, I had a friend who was doing you know small trips 
uh, in light aircraft up to up to Botswana. And um, I had a girlfriend at the time, and she came into the Delta to camp called Kakaba and arranged some some polars. I went down and did my conversion onto the 210. And with 220 hours, I think I had, and I hadn't flown much for the years I was at Londolozi, I started on my first trip. So it was a real, uh, a real eye-opener. And I came in and I, I guided my first trips here in the Delta um, during that year, so sort of starting from about June 79. And um, it, it, it's not difficult to become passionate about the Okavanga. It, it, it was really interesting in that uh, the bi-paddlers that we had, um, I couldn't speak Setswana when I got here. But all of them had had worked on the mines in South Africa, so they all spoke the lingua franca of the mines in those days, uh, which is a, a, a language called Fanagalo. And so I could communicate with them. And so basically, what happened was they guided me, and I guided my guests, um, and we went out, and it, it 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 was absolutely fantastic. I had an amazing crew of 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 paddlers. I think, as I told you earlier today, two people had a, a real influence on me: a Shangan tracker at Londolozi called Tutan Satoli who really was my first sort of one-on-one daily insight into tracking and, and guiding and, and, and wildlife and what to do and what not to do. And the second were the crew of uh, bio paddlers that I had here in the Delta who were amazing. Um, my chief paddler's name was Kilata Healy, which means he always gets lost. And I can tell you that, that, that in my life, I've never met anyone with a better sense of direction. He actually grew up on Chiefs Island uh, during the time. There was a rinderpest ep- epidemic, and I digress, but years ago, uh, which meant that that the Baye, who were cattle herders, were able to take their cattle onto Chiefs Island. But as the buffalo and that kind of thing came back, so they brought the Tsetse with them and they had to move off Chiefs Island. So the places that we walked on a daily basis, uh, Patrick had worked, and uh, his, his English name was Patrick, had worked there, and, and he knew the place backwards. It was unbelievable. Excuse me. <coughs> so from there, I... Um, uh, did various things in Botswana. I um, I ran a, a company called Game Trackers. I worked at Chobe Game Lodge, but I'd worked right through the country by that stage. And that's when I joined Wilderness Safaris, which is really um, 23 years of my life building that amazing business with uh, with Colin Bell and the people at Wilderness, amazing group of guides that we worked with, uh, amongst them our friend Peter Allison and Tuto. Um, so I really spent a lot of time right, right throughout Southern, Southern Africa. And my sort of initial introduction to Wilderness was that I was to set up uh, what we call specialist guiding, which has become private guiding, which is such a big part of the industry in Botswana in these days. So I think that um, uh, during my time, I've been able to reinvent myself a number of times within wilderness. Uh, and there came a point where I decided to stop flying. Uh, and I was really into um, uh, digital photography. It's something that I learned about at wilderness. Um, and uh, I was able to reinvent myself and get into the marketing and sales side. I did a lot of the brochure work and that kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, three books for wilderness, that, which were compilations of photographs, but from all the guides that worked for wilderness. I loved really loved doing that project. Uh, the first one of which was the Mombo book and then two, two volumes. Um, and then after that, I'm, uh, towards the end of my career at wilderness, I moved to Zimbabwe with my wife. And there, we just did the photography, and Marion wrote a blog called Mike and Marion on Safari, which we did for the last six years. And that was a spectacular time where we just chose a country. Um, we'd go there. We did road trips into Malawi from Victoria Falls, into the Busanga from Victoria Falls, often down into Botswana. And we had the most wonderful time. But it all came to an end around about 2017 uh, when we had found a site through a great friend of ours uh, for a camp in, 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 in Hwangi National Park. Um, and so that was the, the, the first, you know, I'd, I'd worked on the, on, on the periphery of building camps, 
uh, and doing doing other things. And I ran mobile safari, so obviously that was a far simpler form of camp. Uh, but um, Vernie's camp in in, in Wangi National Park in Zim was the first camp that we that we actually built ourselves, uh, and we did we did everything on that camp. Um, uh, literally, the decor, the the look and feel of it. Um, uh, we introduced, you know, introduced a, a kitchen, which was right up in the front where the, you know, the, the, the chefs would cook in front of our guests. We always felt that that was a great way with an amazing cast iron oven called a Bertha oven. So we kind of got into food at that time as well. Uh, although I've been into food my whole life. Um, and then, um, uh, in the midst of that uh, project, the, um, um, Mr. Stanley Tolman, um, called us and said, uh, that they were going to build a camp in Botswana at Kija Safari Lodge. So. Um, November of 2017 was our first site inspection here at Kijra. I'd been coming here for many years, so I knew the site and area well. Uh, and we did the first site inspection with the, the, the architect, Anton de Kock. And, uh, and from there it started. Um, in the early part of, uh, of 2018, Wilderness Forest was still running the camp in those days. Um, uh, my wife, Marion, did an EMP, the envi- uh, env- Environmental Management Plan for the site. Uh, uh, luckily, not an EIA, which is the in- Environmental, um, I can't remember, Inspection, whatever it is, EIA. <laughs> um, so the, the difference between an EMP and an EIA is there had been an existing camp on the, on, on the site. So we didn't have to go right into the basics. It would have been a much longer process to get where to, to be a greenfields build on the site. So that the fact that that we were able to do that meant that we could start a lot sooner. And at the end of August in 2018, um, Wilderness handed over the, the site uh, to, to my wife, Marion, and I. Uh, and uh, we got our permission to build in the October. And in November, the Lodge Builders Botswana, the company that built the lodge, um, arrived on site here and, uh, and the build started. So that was the beginning. And it was... It's, in the twilight of my guiding career, if I can put it that way, to have a uh, a project uh, like this. It, let me step back. It had always been my dream uh, to be able to build one lodge and run it perfectly. And uh, this is this the, this lodge is really the dream of Mr. Stanley Tolman and the family. Um, the design work and everything here um, was, was of the lodge itself was done by the uh, the architect Anton de Kock, uh, but all of the decor, the interiors, the detail. Uh, the the work that was done on the interior here was um, done by his eldest daughter, um, Tony Tolman, and uh, uh, phenomenal piece of work, as you can see. So you went from guiding people, guests, for 90 rand a day to helping create a lodge which charges thousands of dollars a night. It's quite a quite a journey. It, it, and it also probably reflects the trajectory of what Botswana has developed over the last 20-30 years. Yeah, look, it's it, it it's been a fascinating journey for me. Considering I came here in 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 79 as a as a 20-year-old guide. Uh, and Botswana was very different in those days. I mean that the 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 big players in tourism in Botswana were the hunting companies um who had you know vast tracts of the Okavango that were that were theirs. People like me who's who's always been a photographic safari operator could only work in the parks in those days. But to see the progression of what's happened in this country, I mean, I can tell you when we went to travel shows like the Indaba in South Africa, talking to international agents, you know, the, the agents, you'd say, you know, I, I'm from Botswana. And they'd say, well, where is that? You know, back in the day, everyone knew about Kenya and everyone knew about Tanzania as safari destinations, but no one really had heard about the Okavango in Botswana. So I think that, that I mean, if I go back, 
Um, there were there were no Botswana who were guides. There were no Botswana that were pilots. There were no Botswana that were were, were camp managers and that kind of thing. There were staff in the camps that were Botswana. There were Makoropolas who, who were Baye paddlers uh, that that worked in these areas. So I think the very first two guides that I know of were uh, uh, two guys called Matupi Maruta and Buxton Masasa at a camp called Santawani who got their guides licenses. And so the progression from there to uh, uh, to 40 years later setting up Kidra, where we have this amazing staff and they are 96% all um, uh, Botswana in every role that you can imagine from camp manager um, right through to a whole office and, and, and um, uh, operation in, in, uh, uh, in Mount that supplies and looks after the lodges, gets all the produce, uh, does all of that uh, to, 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 to see the progression of that over the years, that there are Botswana pilots that fly us around here. It means that, that, that the Botswana, and, and this is a small country, relatively speaking, I mean, we just over 2 million people, to, to, to find that young people now have a career in tourism in their own country, I think that's been the greatest joy for me to witness over 40 years. Your work encapsulates quite a few of your passions, photography, obviously, your love of wildlife. Which do you prefer doing, being a, a camp creator or guide or being a wildlife photographer? You know, I think that's, first of all, it's an interesting question. Um, and, and the truth is all of it put together is what gives me, what gives me joy. Um, the the photography has been really important part of my, part of my life. It's kind of been the thread right through my guiding life from the time I started at Londolozi through, you know, learning about digital photography. And obviously I think the greatest part of digital photography for me was the change where um, the post-processing of your images was instantaneous. You could, you could and I, obviously I learned you know, through programs like uh, Lightroom and Photoshop and all of that kind of stuff as they came about. But it meant that I, I had control over the whole image, exactly what it was going to look like in, in the end and that kind of thing. And that for me was the greatest, the, the, the greatest creative tool uh, in the process that you, you, you controlled everything. So photography has been a key part for me. Guiding has been my life. I mean, I, I, uh, first of all, I, I, I love people and I love talking about this, this subject. It's not hard to get up in the morning when your day is jumping into a vehicle or going for a walk or taking a boat through the delta and that kind of thing. So, so I think that's been that's been key. I mean, the the business has been an important side, but I, I, w- I wouldn't say that I'm a I'm a great businessman in any way. But um, you know, working these businesses through, um, and I think that um, if I step back uh, in the mid '90s when the land use plan in Botswana changed and the photographic companies could get 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 hold of these beautiful tracts of land in the Okavango. I think that was a, a significant jump and change. In 95, when I joined Wilderness, we had three camps. Uh, and when I left, I think we had well over 50 uh, in several different countries around here. So I think that uh, that was a massive change. Um, but to finish to, to finish off, you know, building building Kijra uh, and being part of the team that put this uh, put put this together because it wasn't just my wife and I and the um, you know the Tom and family. There was a whole crew of engineers and architects and um, a building team and that kind of thing that put this lodge together. And it was an, it was an absolute labor of love. And to have accomplished that through COVID, I think is uh, has has been an amazing achievement. So the answer is really all of it put all of it put together. And um, you know, if I look back on my life for forty over forty years in guiding, I wouldn't change one day of it. For the listeners who don't know what the Okavanga Delta is and where it is, can you describe why it's so important and what makes it unique? Well, it, to understand the Delta, you really have to step you know step back one hundred and fifty million odd years. And uh, 
uh, the Zambezi River, the Great Zambezi River, didn't have its current course. It was actually a tributary of the uh, Limpopo River in South Africa. So if you look at the floodplain of the Limpopo, at one time it was a giant river. And this was worked out by um, the De Beers um, um, uh, uh, geologist. It's called the Three Rivers Theory. Uh, as tributaries of that was the Kwando River, of the Zambezi with the Kwando River, and Kubango, Okavango, uh, we call it here, Kubango in, uh, in Angola. And they flowed through the country 150-odd million years ago, and I might, my numbers could be wrong. The central part of Botswana lifted up and created this massive inland lake, the base of which today is the Kalahari Desert, which stretches from the Congo to uh, the Northern Cape. And Bot so Botswana was right underwater at that time. Makhari Khari Pans really would be the center of that. Um, so when all of that eventually, there's a whole part of it, which is includes the formation of the Victoria Falls. It's the eighth gorge of the Victoria Falls over millions of years. Um, the Zambezi took its course out um, across the top of Zimbabwe and uh, into the delta of Morameo in Mozambique, uh, and that left the Okavango here. So the, the Okavango has changed over the years. I mean, 40 years ago, you could access Kijra by boat 12 months of the year. That's no longer possible. It, 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 it's an area that's in constant flux. I think the, the 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 key thing to understand it is it, it it it's the it's the magic of water in the middle of a semi desert. This is this, this is water right in the heart of the Kalahari Desert. Um, it, with incredibly shallow, the the drop from the top of the Okavango to the bottom of the Okavango into the Tamalakanian mine is incredibly shallow. But there are are deep channels and rivers here. Um, there's a massive papyrus plug. So if you look at the delta, it's so, sort of shaped like a pan. So the pan handle as such is where the water comes in at Mohembo, goes through this big plug of reed and papyrus, and then fans out into the delta, into all these amazing floodplains. Associated with that is, uh, is phenomenal wildlife. So it's the north uh, west corner of Botswana, 15,000 square, uh, square kilometers. Um, it absolutely relies on the, um, the, the headwaters of the uh, Kubango River, and the Quito River, which uh, both have their catchment areas in Angola. Um, and uh, two factors affect the, the in, in a normal year here, um, we would say that the flood is a 70-30 split, 70% from the rainwater that falls in Angola, which takes three months to get here, and local rainfall from December through to the end of March, roughly, uh, that creates this lake, lo local rainfall. But depending on how that split is achieved, different things happen here in the, in, in the Delta. So look, I think as a center of biodiversity, it's a world heritage site. Uh, the, the, the value of the Okavango per se is absolutely inestimable. inestimable. And why is it important to protect the Okavango, apart from the fact that the value is inestimable? What, what to the everyday person, why is it important? I think that, that there's enormous value from the Okavango. I think that, the, the, the first of all, I think there's an obligation on humanity to protect the wild areas of the world. They're fewer and fewer, and they're under th greater and greater uh, constant threat. Yet, yet the dependence of, 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 of human beings on these wild areas is immense. Without them, that the humans are not going to survive. So really, you know, if you think about the, great, the, the, the Congo Basin and the rainforest there, the rainforests of the, of the, Azov, uh, of the Amazon, um, the amazing... Um, uh, coral reefs and that kind of thing, and the life that exists around them. You know, we we, we as humanity cannot um, uh, let these areas uh, um, ever um, um, uh, lose their value and 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 be encroached upon for for you know for human you know for for human needs. And 
I'm not a, you know, I, I can't look into a crystal ball and tell us exactly how we're going to do that. But I know in my heart that the, the, it is vital to the, to, to the success of humanity. Now, of course, there's current threat to the Okavango Delta, and that's the waters upstream and the Angola being uh, uh, drying up or becoming less and less. Is there a reason for that? I think that um, well, well, we'll know more about that a little a little way down the line. Um, uh, I, I do know that there's been a recent um, study done and helicopter survey. And I'm talking within the last month um, of the uh, headwaters of the of the Kubanga and the headwaters of the Kita. Um, uh, so so that has recently been done, and a lot of work has been done on it by Dr. Steve Boys. Um, who has been instrumental in 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 finding out about that? I I have not been able to to find out about um, any direct threats um, uh, in, in the way of mining or direct threats in the way of agriculture that would use water in that area. Um, I do know that there is um, that that there is some water extraction in Namibia for 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 irrigation for crops and that kind of thing. And are we getting less water in the Delta these days than we did you know back in the day forty years ago? My gut feel is yes, we are. Um, but I think that I think that um, as an area of biodiversity, uh, the value of uh, uh, of the delta to Botswana is uh, is immense. And you know, the Botswana flag is interesting. You know, the, the, it, it's two thick blue lines with a, a white line and a uh, and a, a thick uh, central central line. And it, it the the blue denotes the water in the north of uh, the sky in the north and the water in uh, in, in in the delta. As being a major part of the the country, and obviously the lines in the centre are for the people. What kind of biodiversity is uh, prominent here? Like, what kind of wildlife do would you want? Would you come here to see? I think that um, uh, the delta species are the are, are the key to this area. Things like a red lechwe, um, uh, 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 impala, for example, um, and all all the different species. Kudu, um, we get a few sable up in the north. Um, Reedback, we get we we get in this area. Um, specific delta creatures like uh, a Sidatunga, which are part of the the, the striped antelope, the Trigela uh, family. Um, and attached with that, you've got all the species like hippo, for example, uh, giraffe, buffalo. We used to have massive herds of buffalo. Um, and then attached to that are the great predators: uh, lion, leopard, um, wild dog, hyena. Um, you'd come to the delta to see all of that. And you know, in addition to that, you know, there there, there are other things that we have uh, very, in very close proximity to here, which is the the the, the massive zebra migration that uh, exists down in the Kalahari between um, uh, in this in when it's uh, when it's wet, we, they're down in the area around Jack's Camp, and I'm 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 saying with well in excess of fifty thousand. In fact, I had a chat with Pete Allison just earlier, and he said, you know, the zebra migration is has increased by many thousands, and why is that? And so is the meerkat population um so very interesting interesting things around that i always used to have a picture of the zebra migration to say that you didn't have to go to to the serengeti to see a migration you could see it right here in Botswana. so i think all of those things are important but kidra is especially known for getting close to the predators like the leopards and lions right that's what really attracts a lot of people here in taurus no i think that i think that 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 kidra originally um I'm, i'm saying prior to the lodge that we built here and prior to 2019, which was a watershed year in the Delta here, um, was really a water camp. So people would come here for the for the for the Delta experiences, being out in Makoro, um, being out by boat, um, perhaps going fishing, for example. Um, even though you know, sort of in the 80s, it, it was there was a hunting camp in this area, and there was quite a bit of hunting done here. Um, 
So that was really the, the, the way that it was in those days. But 2019, during the time we were building um, Kizra Safari Lodge, we had the worst drought in, uh, in, in living memory. Um, it was still dry in this area in July, and we got a trickle of water that was here for a month. Uh, and, and attached to that were the worst fires in living memory. So a lot of the papyrus beds and that kind of thing, we, we really thought that the, that the rhizomes that the, the, the papyrus grew, uh, grow from had been killed completely. It took two and a half to three years before we started seeing the papyrus coming back. And that was a major change in the delta and uh, 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 definitely has affected it. And, and we, we're seeing now that, that there's a significant flow, um, not down the Boro River, which has always traditionally been um, you know, for many years now, the, the, the main source of water through the delta and down into Mount, that the, 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 the area um, is now bypassed. Well, the top of the borough is, 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 is very dead and flat. And that water is now going around um, the back end of Chisa Island, down the Santander Debian into the Gomoti. And that area, and around Kwai, for example, is getting, is getting good water. So all of these are changes, changes in the delta and, uh, uh, but it's an area of change. I mean, it's been an area of change. There's, there's always been tectonic shift. You know, we're basically the end of the Great Rift Valley uh, and the, 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 the great faults around the Delta, the, you know, the Gomari Fault, the uh, Tamalakani, um, all of these are, uh, you know, these three great faults. The Delta sits um, kind of right between them all. Now, a quick word about our sponsor for this episode. Our Future Nature is brought to you by Authentic Gallery. Authentic Gallery makes buying and collecting stunning and impactful art easy, with a portion of proceeds of every purchase going towards vetted partner charities. Want to buy art and contribute to an impactful cause at the same time? Check out Authentic Gallery, spelled A-W-E-T-H-E-N-T-I-C gallery.com. So please visit AuthenticGallery.com to start browsing now. As a photographer, what's your favorite animal that you like photographing and getting close to? I like photographing all animals. It doesn't have to be anything specific. I mean, uh, just, you know, I always, for me, I think that the great thing is to be able to see animals in a scene so that you get a sense of it. I mean, the lechery, you want them in the water uh, and that kind of thing. Um, elephant are amazing in any, in, in, in any setting. Um, obviously love photographing uh, the big cats, um, uh, cheetah, lion, and leopard is fantastic. Um, uh, and, uh, and there are plenty of them around. But you know, if I if I'm doing a line photograph, out of preference, I don't want to do a portrait of the head. I want to have a scene in which the, you you can see that that line is a delta line. So I think that to try and use photography as an art form where you create an artistic um, image by using all the bits and pieces of the background and the animal, so you have a sense of where the animal is. Uh, that's it's not easy to do, but it's certainly it's certainly what I love to do. You mentioned a little bit about the you reinvented yourself with digital photography as well as photographer that changed the tool set that you had is photography still as important or considered as an art form in your uh, mind given that there's so much of it now and then instagram and tiktok is photography still an important tool for conservation yeah it, it, it it's hugely important to con conservation i mean i think um i think on instagram for example i think the uh, the video image is becoming more and more and more um, the, the 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 sort of backstop, you know, the backstop of uh, of Instagram. So you know, we're constantly getting asked, you know, can we have video of this? And that, I think that's uh, that's key. But but the but photography, absolutely, you know, if 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 you're trying to explain an experience or if you're trying to give a sense of what an area is, 
what better way than to, to communicate it visually through photography? So I think, and 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 you think of it, the pro, 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 proliferation. You know, everybody has a cell phone today. The pro, prolifer, proliferation of images and imagery um, uh, is just phenomenal. And uh, and you know, from that also are great memories made. But I think it's uh, it's a crucial part of uh, of 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 um, uh, bringing. Uh, to life, the, the, the areas and the conservation of it. So you've had a fantastic life. I mean, don't mind <laughs> saying, I mean, you, you've seen so much. You obviously met so many interesting people out here in the bush in Botswana. Um, let's bring it now to talk a bit about the conservation element and the future of photographic tourism, uh, conservation in Botswana and, and Southern Africa. Obviously, these lodges are an amazing way to bring people to come and appreciate the biodiversity. Mm. And you generate a lot of money, which goes back into the communi- communities. There is also the argument that this kind of high-end tourism is very, can be very damaging for the environment. And, you know, of course, the carbon footprint of people coming into the, these areas. How do you balance that? Well, look, I think that, that um, the key to tourism in Botswana has always been the fact that the, that, that the government um, put forward a um, uh, a high cost, low volume form of tourism in this country. So very different, for example, than um, uh, than Tanzania when the when the wildebeest are migrating migrating and crossing the Mara River, where you know you can have a number of vehicles all there doing the same thing, obviously jockeying for position. So this has been a country um, that really developed over time and got its name for that specific type of tourism. Not to say there aren't areas that are, are more heavily utilized, you know. The, the, the heavier utilized areas are there, but it's it, it, no match for what happens in other other parts of the world. So, I, I, and and there's no one answer to this uh, to to this you know to this question. I think I think what's key is that we need to continue with the model in Botswana. I think it's really really important to us. But I think also you know tourism tourism is not the sole um, um, uh, form of land use here in the country. I think if you if you look at uh, a, a company like African Parks, which over the last uh, couple of years, um, uh, many years have have taken on the running of national parks in really key areas, you know, up in Congo, for example, where they're working with the uh, with 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 the uh, mountain gorillas, um, in Chad, where they look after Zakuma National Park, in Benin, in Malawi, um, this is this is absolutely incredible work. Uh, that they are doing uh, on the back of donor funding that they are using to look after these parks, and some of these parks are areas where no tourists will go. I mean, you will not have tourists going into to, to some of these countries to go to go and visit them. So I think what we need to do is have a model in which some of our tourism dollars, and this is just me speaking aloud, um, I think that that some of our tourism dollars have to go back into protection of the parks um, and uh, and looking after them. And this, in this country, I think a lot more needs to be done with communities and finding ways that communities benefit of the of of the wildlife areas. I mean, a lot of this has been done already, but I don't think it, it, it's near a place where it's uh, where uh, we found the right solutions yet. You were instrumental in setting up Kidra. Tell us a little bit about how you implemented sustainable strategies in the construction of the camp. So that. Sustainability was one of the one of our key drivers of what we did in uh, in, in in Kijira Safari Lodge. So um, essentially, Kijira is 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 a, a self contained village in the middle of a wild area. Um, so the things that we needed to look at and and, and make modern here, we, 
first thing is sewerage. Um, so we've got a, a complete above ground uh, bio sewerage plant, um, which works on uh, bacteria um, uh, feeding off um, uh, solid matter that, that we pump through. So we have one area where, where, where we do this, and it goes through a series of tanks getting broken down and comes out as a, as a water clean enough to pump onto the ground. Uh, and that's how we deal with, with sewage. So that's one of the key things. The second thing is our water treatment plant. So we've got tannin in the water and that kind of thing here. So we have a water treatment plant that treats it and provides clean water for, for ourselves and our staff. That was the second key uh, part of it. The third, the third part of it was um, uh, to, work, to, to run off a massive, um, uh, what we call an energy center. Uh, but we have a, a, a large Tesla um, uh, solar farm here. I think the biggest of any lodge, um, I guess, anywhere in Africa at this stage. It's 400 kilowatts um, and runs off. Uh, um, it, it's a, it's a, uh, a plant that, that um, uh, uses also generators to back up the batteries when, we, you know, when we're really busy um, and all the air conditioners are running and that kind of thing. We need a bit of backup for the, for the, for the, for the batteries so that they would run to pump the batteries up to a level that we then switch off, but during the day we're entirely on uh, on uh, on power from the, uh, from the sun. And then the third part of the strategy is is we, we we've looked at ways of working with um, uh, our local communities. We have a um, a group here in Botswana that we uh, that we work very closely with, and um, part of that is 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 with our our, our bio waste. So we have a composter here. Um, the uh, bio waste goes through the composter. The composter takes about two to three weeks to produce a usable compost, which we put into reusable bags. Our trucks that come in once a month ferry that down to a base in Mount. Um, the people from uh, the, um, the village that use it send a truck down with the cattle for the abattoir once a month. They collect it, go back, and we're going to be using it to grow vegetables in the, uh, in, in the, uh, uh, in the village, which we will buy as well for our, for our staff, but they should have enough for them to be able to use themselves and, uh, and, and to be able to sell. And that is only one of the, the programs. We work very closely with um, Wild and Trust um, that are the, the main predator researchers of Botswana. We have a leopard project that's happening uh, here at the Citizen Leopard Project that's happening here at the moment. Um, we're working on various uh, tools for school kids. Um, uh, solar lights, for example, is one of the things that uh, we've been able to, uh, to do. And you know, obviously, we, you know, the, the villages that we, we go to, uh, we would do that as well. So uh, all of these projects kind of fit together to, to, to give a sense of what we believe was a, uh, was a crucial sustainable, sustainability model for, uh, for Kedra. And maybe just the final question before we talk about your photos. Biodiversity loss is obviously a massive issue. Um, Human-wildlife conflict in Africa, mm. uh, the illegal wildlife trade, We've seen the decimation of elephant populations, lion populations. There has been some progress in certain, with certain species in, in Southern Africa, for sure. What do you think is the general strategy moving forward to protect the biodiversity uh, in, in Africa? Is it that we have to create these high-end uh, touristic destinations we've just talked about? Is it that we have to buy up land and, and protect it? Is there, is there a middle ground that we can you know, work with communities more to protect the environment? It's a very loaded question but i just wanted to get what your overall uh feeling was how are we going to stop this you know stemming of of, of the wildlife population yeah. well sean i think to start off you know uh, i would love to sit and, and hear anyone you know that you ask that question to come up with an answer for you that that really um holistically explains you know how are we going to do this i haven't got i i can't tell you how are we going to do it 
I, I do know that there's a need for it to be done. And there are, there are really good people working on, on solving these problems whose entire work it is to, uh, to, to do that. I think the, 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 the human-animal conflict issue is a, is, is, is a massive issue. And we have an expanding population in Africa, and I don't know how we're going to get away, uh, get away from that. And, 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 and from a personal perspective, you know, I've, got, I've got great empathy with a villager who grows a, who grows a patch of pumpkins to get his family through and the elephants come in and destroy them overnight. So, you know, he's got a, he's, he's, he's definitely puts his hand up and says, I'm not happy with uh, this. And I, and, and I understand that. And I think it's relevant. I really don't know what all the answers are. I just know that we have to keep working at it. And that, that our, our sense is that, that we're in a place where the sense of urgency to find solutions for it um, is, is really critical. I mean, I've always said as a joke to my guests, you know, if you put the 10 elephant experts in Africa in a room, and tell them to find a solution to the elephant problem, they would all die in that room because none of them would be able to agree. So I think that, I think that these are all the critical things that we need to address. It's not specifically my area of expertise. I obviously read about it a lot and I, I, I try to understand it and I try to figure out in my own mind, you know, what is a really good way of, of doing it. But I think that all of these initiatives are important. I mean, just one simple thing that I, that I think is a really critical thing that could be used for, for communities to earn money. Um, and that is that um, there's um, uh, uh, a program using uh, a little fly called a black soldier fly. I don't know if you know anything about black soldier fly. Okay, black soldier fly is really interesting. I mean, in big cities like Singapore and in parts of Ind Indonesia, they've got very big farms producing it, but it feeds on bio-waste, okay? So our big problems are, are, are things like the growth of soya, okay? And fish meal for, for 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 fodder for animals. Okay, this fly produces a, a larva. Okay, when it's in its final stage, it lives for nine days, and all it does is mate, and it only drinks. It doesn't eat anything, but it lays the eggs. Four days later, these little um, maggots hatch. Okay, they start feeding on bio waste. Okay, and they become a larva, uh, a, a good sized larva in the space of about two weeks. Now there are various ways of utilizing it. You can crush it and use it as cubes. You feed it to chickens. You can feed it to pigs. You obviously can't feed it to to to, to cattle. Uh, but on a small basis, let, let's say a, um, a mother and her two sons. Okay, and she has uh, um, she has chickens, and she wants to raise chickens so that they've got chickens, and they can sell chickens, and they can have eggs. Okay, with this it, in a, literally in a tiny box. Okay, they can grow these black soldier flies, feed their own chickens. And the byproduct of this is an incredible brine and fertilizer that they can use to fertilize fields and grow crops. An initiative like that in Africa, I think, would work brilliantly. Mm. And then just finally about, because obviously photography is what brought me to, to Africa. Photography is what brought me to conservation. Uh, and I think that it's, it's hard to understand these issues unless you actually come and see these animals in the wild, because most people in the cities far, far away may never have that ability to see them in the wild. What's the spiritual, ethical importance of keeping this biodiversity here? Apart from the purely practical, why do you think we should allow the elephants to roam free and the alliance to carry on existing in Africa? They depend on us for this land to roam free. You know, it's not as though the wildlife and the animals have got any say in it. They they live in these areas. These are their areas. They've been here since time immemorial. It really is our moral obligation to protect these areas for for the wildlife. I think that 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 from a spiritual uh, you know perspective, I just think of what we did on our game drive this morning. You know, we went out 
um, even over lunch with that monkey that was trying to get uh, get come down and that kind of thing, how much joy that whole process gave us. Um, I think it, it it goes deep within in the and I'm not saying it, it's deep within all human beings, but those of us who've got even a, a vague moral conscience uh, will feel a need to protect the the diversity of the world and the wild areas and the animals that live in it. I think that that was a chief Seattle said something along the lines of uh, um, uh, of uh, we are nothing without the animals. And I, I really feel that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. It was really great. The pleasure. Thank you. That's Cheers. My pleasure. I hope you got what you wanted. Thank you for tuning in to Our Future Nature. Please remember to like and subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes. And if you enjoyed the podcast, it would really help if you could take a minute to leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. Much appreciated. Please follow us on Instagram at Our Future Nature Pod for behind the scenes and extra information. You can also follow me at Shawnee Davis if you want to be updated on the work that I do in green entrepreneurship, advocacy, and conservation. And finally, Our Future Nature was produced and powered by Authentic Studio. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.